Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Round on this beautiful spring day in northern New England. I'm glad you all could join us. Um, for those uh, who are uh, off-site, the CME code for today is BNC6. That's BNC6. And it does work. I've tested it already. And with that, uh, I'm going to welcome um, John Lurie to introduce today's speaker. Dr. Lurie is a professor of medicine, orthopedics, and the Dartmouth Institute. He's the section chief for hospital medicine and in in a program lead for the High Value Health Collaborative. All right, thanks. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Um, so I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Tanzer, uh, who's going to give grand rounds this morning. Dr. Tanzer did his undergraduate work at the Albrecht Ludwigs University in Freiburg and got his medical degree from the University of Lübeck in Lübeck, Germany. He did his first residency at the University of Göttingen in Bremen, Germany, and then did his second residency at uh, Maine Medical Center in Portland in anesthesiology, where he was also chief resident, uh, and then did a fellowship in pediatric anesthesia at Boston Children's. He then went to work uh, at Maine Medical Center for five years before joining DH in 2005. He went on to get a master's degree at TDI um, and then additional training in predictive analytics and machine learning. He is currently an associate professor of anesthesiology, pediatrics, and TDI. He's the director of the Pediatric Pain Service and the Pain-Free Sedation Center at CHAD. His academic work um, his focus on the effects of general anesthesia on brain development in young children, on patient surveillance and early prediction of deterioration, and on evidence-based care of sepsis and the dissemination of evidence-based practice, where he serves as the high-value healthcare collaborative clinical lead for sepsis and the vice chairman of their dissemination project. And that's the work he's going to share with us today about how uh, efforts to improve the care of sepsis, uh, and the thing that's not on his CV is he's just a really nice guy. Thank you very much, John, for this uh, kind introduction. You could have said many bad things about me, so I appreciate that you didn't. Um, is the microphone working okay? I just switched it on. Just wanted to make sure it is. Um, so what I thought what I do today is give you an overview of the work around sepsis that has happened here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, but really overall in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock healthcare system. Um, the work I'm presenting here is not mine. It is really the work of a large group team of people who have come together here at DHMC um, to improve sepsis care for our patients. I thought I'd then move on and put that into the broader context of what the High Value Healthcare Collaborative does in terms of sepsis work, how we collect data, how it's being analyzed, what that data shows, and what kind of interesting research questions have come out of that. And then lastly, move on to the beyond part. And the beyond part is that um, CMS is implementing pay-for-performance for sepsis care. 
Uh, we have been collecting data on our institution in the background for some while now. It's supposed to go into effect in October of this year. And the way it's being designed, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end, is that it's an all or none payment. And it collects process measures. It does not collect patient outcomes. But if you miss any of these process measures, all payment is being withheld. And this team who has been working here has tried to implement some um, EPIC EDH-based tools to help us all to be compliant with that mandate. And in the DH part up front, I will um, try to point those out to you so that you can use them. Uh, I have no disclaimers. I'm not sponsored by industry or anything of that sort. I have received uh, salary support for sepsis work from CMS as well as from the Arnold Foundation. That salary support is actually ending uh, today. Um, so, content overview. Uh, what have we done at DHMC? Why did we see a need to change what we were doing? Um, some examples of the quality improvement work that has happened, as well as the EDH tools that I talked about. Um, High-value healthcare, where does this come off? How did we benefit from it? Um, how does this all look when you have a bunch of large data sets that allow you to look at more rare events? What kind of questions come out of that? And then lastly, the CMS uh, pay for performance issues and some newer literature that has come out around that. So this is a um, heat map that was produced by one of our brilliant senior data analysts who's actually here in the auditorium, uh, sitting right there in front. Uh, that is uh, Fred or uh, Friedrich von Recklinghausen. Uh, which is his full name, and as a German, I just wanted to take the opportunity to pronounce that the way it's been pronounced. <laughs> which is a very rare occurrence for Fred, obviously. Um, so if you look at this heat map, and these are patients um, color-coded where they come from, you actually see that most of our patients do come, uh, this doesn't project really well, but that most of our patients come from the immediate area around the hospital, and then another, um, area where patients come from is this area at Claremont, Keene, over here, and then a few more here. It's more a north-south distribution overall than an east-west distribution. <coughs> High Value Healthcare Collaborative is a collaborative of um, a bunch, 13 or so, the number fluctuates a little bit, uh, large healthcare organizations that have come together to collect data and form a learning collaborative. And if you go to the website, which is highvaluehealthcare.org, this is the opening statement that HEC is a provider learning network committed to improving healthcare through data and collaboration, measure, innovate, test, continuously improve, disseminate, facility adoption, and then advocate for policy models that sustain, uh, support sustainable high-value healthcare. And you will see elements of exactly all this in my talk today. Not all of the members necessarily um, contribute data to all the projects, but for the sepsis projects, um, the majority actually is. Uh, it is thought that overall, high-value healthcare collects data for up to 80 million patients in the United States. So 
the CMMI project, CMMI-sponsored project around sepsis care, which was part of a $26 million grant that was awarded to the High Value Healthcare Collaborative, was to look at sepsis care in the collaborative, collect data, and improve care for these patients. There were many other projects. Some of them were led by people in the room, like Brooke and John. Um, but this is just sepsis. So the baseline thing that was done was to collect data on patients retrospectively in a uniform fashion across the collaborative. And what the strength of that methodology is that whenever I collect data in our department or show any data, I always get pushed back for various different reasons that I didn't do something right or measure something right. The strength of doing this across the collaborative is that it's being done in the same way across every healthcare institution. And so while you may argue that some of the numbers are not absolutely reflecting what is going on, the same would be true for all other institutions. And then compared is still a valid way of seeing on what is happening. So when we looked at our baseline data of three years, 2010, 2011, 2012, I'm just going to focus here on severe sepsis and septic shock mortality. Our mortality over these years was quite high. These are the sepsis patients that we see per year. This is the length of stay. These are the ICU days. And we looked at three-hour bundle compliance and mortality for severe sepsis and septic shock. And what I have in brackets there is the mortality on average of the other high-value healthcare institutions. So it became relatively clear that we weren't doing as well as we hoped we would be doing. And so that provided the impetus to uh, move on and look at our processes and try to improve care. The example for what we were going to do actually comes from Intermountain Healthcare. And this is a paper from Russ Miller that looked at patients who came in with severe sepsis or septic shock through the emergency department at Intermountain from 2004 through 2010. And you see here plotted mortality that decreased from 21% to 8.7% over time. And the three-hour bundle compliance rate that improved from 4.9 to 73.4% in that same time frame. So it was relatively clear on what we had to do is identify these patients you know, and use the three-hour bundle to hopefully improve outcomes. I just want to point out here early on, because I'm going to close the loop on that at least halfway at the very end, that they also plotted a control group of patients that not, did not receive the three-hour bundle. And as you can see, their mortality improved as well. So the overview of um, the sepsis work done here um, basically had these highlights. Um, lean improvement events that were sponsored by the Value Institute in the ED and in the intensive care unit develop an EPIC-based order set uh, for the three-hour bundle and subsequent care. We introduced mandatory sepsis education with CME credits that you all suffered through in spring of 2015. Uh, this was the first time that we created something like the hated e-learning thing 
that was a little more engaging, had some quizzes, had some videos, and you actually um, got CME credit for it as well. A lot of these auto sets and the sepsis detection tools that we implemented here were distributed across um, New Hampshire and partially across Vermont as well, either through the New England Health Alliance or the, through the Crest um, network, also by direct visit. So we had a team of people here called the Sepsis Roadshow that consisted of physicians, nurses, quantum improvement people that visited other hospitals in the state. Uh, for example, Keene, where we kicked off a sepsis initiative that's led by Gerard Kiernan that has had tremendous results there. We created an automated sepsis alert that is EPIC-based in all the inpatient areas that has a best practice alert, and I'll talk about that some more, and a limited um, RN-initiated sepsis order set, and I'll um, speak in more detail about that as well. So the first site that we focused on was the emergency department in terms of the improvement event. And over the three years that we looked at, 2010 through 2012, their three-hour bundle compliance was, as I showed you, 6%, and was dramatically higher at other institutions. But you can see that if you look at the individual elements, you know, we're hitting them at roughly 50%. And so each element, 50%, 0 0.5 to the fourth power, that gives you 0 0.0625, that's 6%. Shows you this is not all that easy to get this right. Even if, if you hit each element at 80%, your total three-hour bundle compliance is only around 50%. So this is not easy work to be done. You really need to um, be very um, disciplined in terms of identifying these patients first and getting the appropriate care to them in, in, in a pretty short time frame. So the first thing we started with is we need to identify these patients much better. And if you look at that time zero clock that we have, it actually starts at this time of triage in the emergency department, not when they're in the cubicle, not when they're seated, not when they see a physician or a nurse for the first time, but at the time of ED triage. And so the screen we implemented basically was a copy from North Shore, Long Island Jewish, they're no now called Northwell, who has had 10 years of work with IHI, and they are HEHC member. And so when we came together with the HEHC sepsis group, um, we kind of looked around what other people were doing who had a decade of work into this and greatly benefited from what they were doing because we were basically copy and pasting a lot of the stuff they had done and adapting it to local practices. So. Sepsis criteria, they often use Sears criteria. If you use Sears criteria in our emergency department, almost everybody's going to be positive. It might be quite sensitive, but it's very nonspecific. So what uh, Northwell had done is used super Sears criteria, and they consist of new unexplained mental status change or a um, suspected infection, and then uses kind of Sears criteria that are all just notched up a little bit. Right, so instead of 100, it's 120, respiratory rate is 24 instead of 20, and so on. So these were put out everywhere in the triage area and throughout the entire emergency department. <coughs> and they actually were used at the time on the ED tracking board as a diagnosis 
to direct quick and prompt care to the patient. And it's being used up until now as a diagnosis for superserous by basically just calling attention to that. Um, one of our former ED residents, who's now a um, ICU fellow, uh, Matt Roginski, actually looked at the chance of being admitted when you are superserous positive arriving in the ED, and it's about 99.7%. It's almost a better screen than the established um, ED criteria. So quick things, and I'm not going to belabor on this too much in the interest of time, but um, the f one of the very first thing on the walkthrough in the lean process was that everywhere in the hospital, not just in the ED, but throughout our hospital, we were drawing serum lactates, put on ice, no tourniquet, and send them off to the lab with about a turnaround time of over an hour. Well, it turns out that the lab actually had changed their recommended way of drawing lactates half a year earlier. And it was noted in the lab handbook, which I don't read on a regular basis. Some of you may, but the communication kind of didn't really go out. So by changing that to drawing a whole blood that does not to be put on ice um, and allows much rapid, uh, uh, more rapid processing in the lab, the turnaround time just by that went down by 50%. The other thing we noted, we went to the literature and said, you actually can draw a lactate with a tourniquet as long as the tourniquet is not on for too long and is first, as long as it's the first sample you're drawing. So we kind of permitted to draw a lactate uh, with the tourniquet on. Another quick win here was that the hospital actually didn't have a critical lactate callout value. So while we have this for a high potassium or a very low hemoglobin, you could have drawn a lactate on a patient that was 12 and nobody ever would have told you about it other than you checking on the labs, but there was no critical call-out value. So we implemented that call-out value institution-wide. These are just examples on showing and how some of these quality improvements actually bring benefit for the entire hospital or the healthcare institution, even though you might think, well, you're doing all this work for only two patients per week. Um, as I mentioned, SuperSurs as a cleaning tool, we looked at how are being IVs started, what's the process, um, and there was a process in place for trauma patients where you know, there was an escalation if somebody wouldn't get the IV and it would go on to the next person with a higher skill set and so on. And so we basically copied that, that process. Um, the, you know, the, the details of that is usually the nurses are the ones placing the IVs and then normally the best at it, and then they call the resident who don't do it as often, who are not quite as good as it. And then if that fails, they call the ED staff who do it even less often. So if you look at, there's a hierarchical letter that goes up and an expertise letter that almost goes down. <laughs> um, there was some redirection of, of uh, personnel to have a buddy nurse that would attend and help with these patients. Uh, team communication went up. And after we had changed all this blood lactate things, they ended up buying a blood gas machine that does lactates in DD anyway, which is one of the advantages of doing a project that has leadership buy-in, and we did, because sepsis was one of the strategic initiatives. This was an HCHC project, and the hospital leadership cared about it, so the funds were there to buy that machine. 
Um, this is an example of the, sorry, this doesn't project really well, uh, of the three L bundle order set that we implemented in EDH. Um, and basically, it just hits on all the four elements of the three L bundle, which is drawing a lactate, drawing culture before antibiotics, give antibiotics, and give a 30 milliliter per kilogram fluid bolus. And all these orders are here, and they're pre-populated with the exception of the antibiotic, where you can pick an antibiotic combination that is based on the suspected source of the infection. So the early results when we started in 2014, um, started to meet here in December 2014, time to antibiotic came down very nicely, um, and the length of stay of patients admitted through the ED was coming down as well. Um, this is a slide that shows the mortality for patients um, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, for different um, sites. This is mortality for the ED starting here in the end of 2013. This is when we really got going over time until early 2016. Um, mortality for the ICU, uh, mortality for inpatients that's bouncing around a little bit. This is actually... Um, this is when we did the mandatory education for everybody, um, but you still see a lot of fluctuation, partially because of the low number of patients we have in some, uh, in some quarters. And mortality for all our DHMC. So the, the brief synopsis is that over a relatively short period of time, we were able to decrease mortality um, quite significantly uh, throughout the institution. So after addressing the issues in the ED, which was a pretty confined process with the same team taking care of um, patients coming in and addressing it in the ICU, um, whereas most of their patients are either transfers or are, are inpatients, um, we try to address the issue of sepsis detection um, in inpatients, and that's a very difficult thing because in most of these inpatients, they're here for a reason. And so their physiologic data set of vital signs is kind of out of whack because they're hospitalized, they have baseline mental status changes just from being taken out of their normal environment frequently. The diagnosis is very difficult. There are many different uh, physician services or overall services um, attending to a patient. There's some great social network analysis, actually, on how many different people touch a patient during an average three-day stay, and it's 200 different people. You just think about all the different people that are involved in the care. It is very complex. So um, through um, the educational process, we put up these... Um, sepsis power hour posters that uh, use the same super Sears criteria uh, that are part of the sepsis education as well to be used on our inpatients. And then if the patients meet these criteria to notify the covering team in life safety, make sure that there's an IV started and then think about doing the bundle. And, and this was directed towards the nurses. I mentioned that we had the um, hospital-wide education 2015, 
um, for the inpatients, we developed an RN limited order set. Um, we did have the Physician 3R bundle order set in place. And we were hoping that we were able to implement an electronic sniffer, basically to automate the process that not somebody has to look at these vital signs individually and then kind of add them up in some way and, and see if somebody's super serious positive or not, but have this done by, by EDH. And there was a team, large team coming together. Many of them are, are, are sitting in the audience right now um, that did it in the following way. So we basically decided to use the same super serious criteria that are being used in the D on our inpatients as well. And again, the thinking is there to strike a balance between sensitivity and specificity. This was implemented in EDH running in the background without alerting anybody. And the reason we did that, we just wanted to see how it performs. And in order to do that, it ran in the background. We got the times and the patients when this alert went off, then went into the patient chart and looked at were these patients septic, what else was going on, or was this just a nuisance alarm that would drive us nuts if we would go live with that. And so over 300 charts were reviewed to validate this as a, as a reasonable alert. And what the team found is that two-thirds of all the alarms were valuable. And out of those two-thirds, half of the patients were sepsis, septic, and half had some other event. And the way we define that, that this is a valuable alarm, is that it prompted some sort of intervention that the patient likely benefited from. Right? So it wasn't just good enough to say, all right, this patient now has a high heart rate and a fever and nobody's ever going to do anything about it. Or the patient is in pain, you know, give some pain medication, that's it. It was more scenarios where a patient after thoracic surgery went into atrial fibrillation and somebody did either medical or electrical conversion of some sort, or where the care was escalated to intermediate care, for example. So those were actionable, deemed actionable alarms. So two-thirds of these were helpful, and we did something to the patient that they hopefully benefited from, and about one-third was non-contributory. The question came up on whom should we alert to. And so the options were obviously, you know, page the physician directly or alert the nurse and have some kind of a pre-assessment before this was going to go out to the primary team. And again, the thinking around this was to control alarms um, and get the people who are at the bedside most of the time, especially in the surgical um, units, um, involved in this process. So the alerts went out initially, and I'll show you this in a moment, to the LNA as she or he was entering the vital signs, then going up to the nurse, and then going to the, um, to the primary team. There was a strong focus on communication and collaboration around that, and was rolled out in a stepwise fashion in the medical units first, and then subsequently the surgical units. And the way this looks, uh, works is when a RN or LNA files the vital signs, and what that means they go around, they get a blood pressure, 
they go to EPIC, they enter the patient's chart, they enter the vital signs. At that time, if the vital signs meet super serious criteria, a best practice alert will come up on the screen um, if these criteria are met. We put an emphasis on looking at other changes, physiological status, and the new unexplained altered mental status, which is obviously very, very difficult to get. So as the LNA enters these vital signs, this flag comes up. Your patient meets these criteria. This could be concerning for sepsis. Please let, let the RN know. Um, and then you can acknowledge this, and this goes away. For the nurse, um, the flag comes up as well, but looks a little bit different. This says patient meets sepsis criteria, and then it allows them to order a limited order set for, the, um, for that patient. It also could be sent a flag that this is not going to be done, um, and some other things are uh, being an explanation for why that is not being done. In the nurse's protocol, the way this actually reads is, you know, these are the super serious criteria. There are patients that are um, excluded from this um, because there is actually an order that can be placed by the physician. Um, sepsis protocol is not appropriate. And there's also even an order that um, you can have your patient not monitored by this alert sniffer. Um, the actions to be taken is notify the primary team if you think this is actually concerning and real. Um, notify the life safety system. Make sure the patient has an IV in place. And then if the primary provider, the primary, primary team does not respond in 30 minutes, the nurses can proceed and open a limited order set. Um, that is being, was approved by the New Hampshire Board of Nursing that allows them to order a blood lactate and send blood cultures and give a limited 500 ml normal saline bolus. This is all to not delay care and get the ball rolling on these patients. This is the nurse's uh, order set. As you can see, it's the lactates, the blood cultures, and it's the limited fluid bolus. So there are obviously patients who are chronically ill and chronically meet super serious criteria. And there's a magnitude of reasons why they would do that. And obviously, we don't want to hear that the alarm goes off on them you know, every other hour whenever the vital signs are being taken, because they're going to meet these criteria all the time. So you can go in and say, sepsis protocol not appropriate, um, and basically take this uh, BPA uh, out for a limited period of time. It's 72 hours now that you can stop this alert. And again, this is to control false positive alarms or not helpful alarms. If you look at um, the reasons why this alarm actually goes off, this is mildly confusing, but this is the number of patients here. So about two-thirds of patients qualify because they have a high respiratory rate so that's higher than 24. And half of them uh, come in because their heart rate is high. And again, as a reminder, that's higher than 120. So those two criteria are the most common ones why the super alert goes off. 
If you look at the distribution of alarms uh, through the day, um, they are not more common at night or in the early morning hours. Uh, it's just as common here uh, and here. Part of that is obviously when vital signs are being taken, so it's more likely that somebody goes around at 8 o'clock and gets a bunch of vital signs and then does it at noon and then does it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so partially that's a reflection of that. Probably John Lurie's greatest accomplishment as doing this work was to get this through the committee and nobody ever picked up on this fantastic acronym, which stands for SEP1 MD assessment. But this is how you actually find it in EDH. So one of the mandates that comes up with the CMS pay for performance is that after you delivered a three-hour bundle to your patients, there has to be some subsequent assessment of the patient. And in their infinite wisdom, they came up with the idea that you have to do a full-up physical exam on the patient to assess their volume status or the effect of your volume resuscitation therapy. And that is true even if the patient has an arterial line or some other invasive monitoring in place. It's just mandated. The evidence for that is relatively limited, uh, but it is mandated. So in order to comply with that mandate, we put that smart note in there that's called SEP1MD assessment that is pre-populated down here. And um, it's heart exam, lungs exam, pulses, capillary refill, and skin assessment. And you just have to hit on these elements. Because if you don't, you fail that process measure, and CMS won't pay. And it's an all or none payment. You could have done everything perfectly fine. Your patient could have been doing incredibly well. None of that matters in this payment form that they have right now. You have no skin assessment in your note or a capillary refill somewhere, then you fail, which is quite unfortunate, but that's the way it's, it's being designed. So we, we designed the smart notes that it hits on all the elements of this mandate. It's pre-populated, you hit F2, and then you can say vigorous refill, not so vigorous refill, skin is modeled, normal, all these things that are listed there makes it much easier to do that note. You just have to find it, and I think for that purpose, that acronym actually may be helpful. Just checking for time here. All right, so high-value healthcare, where does this all come in? And I've alluded to it um, a bunch of times in the last 30 minutes that we have greatly benefited from the work of others. And there is really a distinct difference of working with people from other institutions um, over a period of time versus picking up a phone and f talking to somebody elsewhere that you don't really know or that you read a paper and think about implementing that, what they have done. This really over the years has become a relationship of trust where we very openly share what we have done uh, our failures as much as the, some successes we have had. And, and for me, doing this work here, it's a, it's a huge asset. Um, 
it, it really has been uh, brilliant for us. So one of the things that we have tracked over time, and this is from an older project, on how sites that are just starting in sepsis care do in comparison to those who already had a mature process in place. And certainly Dartmouth-Hitchcock is one of these sites that was just getting started at the time. And you can see that over quarters since intervention start, these sites uh, pick up on care really quick and do well. It's this accelerated learning in a collaborative um, that people talk about that we actually have seen. And what makes HHC unique in that regard is that it's not just learning and talking to others on how they do, but it is to collect data on all these metrics at the same time in a uniform fashion across many healthcare systems that makes it comparable data and then look at it. So strength in numbers. So one of the great things you have is when you have thousands of sepsis patients, following them over time and looking at the data makes the data much more meaningful than if we would look at our 100 sepsis patients per year. These are sepsis patients whose data collection from member-submitted data was linked to CMS Medicare data. So these are all Medicare patients. It's a population mostly 65 and older. And what we did here is followed them by age group. And sorry, this doesn't project well, but I'll, I'll talk about it um, over time. So the timeline is in hospital mortality, time of discharge, 90 day, 180 day mortality, and 365 out here, so 90, 180, 365. And it compares the mortality at one year with stroke mortality, non-STEMI mortality, and STEMI mortality. And these are the age groups in brackets of five, with this group being 90 years and older, and these are all in brackets of five. And what you can see is that independent of age, mortality over time after discharge increases almost in a linear fashion. So you're looking at 90-day mortality somewhere in here. You came from 15, 20% at 90 days. You are up here at around 30%. Um, at 180 days, you're now close to around 40%. At a one year, you are up here at 50%. We don't know why this is happening. And so one of the research projects that has come out of this work that we're starting to do now is, what are these patients being readmitted for and what happens to them after discharge? Um, because this is dramatically different than you can find it for many other disease processes over the course of one year. So members share all data, as I mentioned, and it's being plotted, and you can look up online on what your three-hour bundle compliance is. So this is Dartmouth and these are other healthcare systems, and it's just a timeline, and here it's being plotted by the units that you're in. So we are submitting data for our um, um, general care unit, which is this bright green, and then for the ICU and for the ED department, and we can see on how we're doing compared to other institutions.
So one of the things that popped up when we plotted length of stay is that we had a relatively long length of stay compared to other institutions for our sepsis patients. Um, this is um, another plot that actually looks at one of the most controversial elements of the three-hour bundle, which is giving patients 30 mLs of fluid per kilogram. And if you look at the actual process elements, the non-mature sites that haven't been doing this long had struggled with that crystalloid compliance, because that's usually where the most pushback happens. Um, and they improved that over time, um, especially this crystalloid compliance as one of the elements of the three-hour bundle. This looks at index admission days for a sepsis episode. And again, Dartmouth shows that we have a longer average time in the hospital of around 13 days, whereas the average is 9.1 across the high-value healthcare collaborative. And you may say, well, we just keep them, but they don't come back. And so if you look at the average number of post-index admission days, 90 days after discharge, we also up here. So that kind of implies a little bit that it's not that we're keeping them longer and then sent them home more healthy so that they wouldn't come back. But we keep them longer and then they have a greater chance of coming back. And I think this is an example where comparative data um, provides kind of ideas on things that we could work on um, to improve our healthcare delivery here. Just gonna um, talk about some of the questions that have come up as we collected data. And the first one is, um, what about patients who actually come in through the emergency department who don't come from home, but who come from skilled nursing facilities. And our sample size for us to do this alone here would be too small to generate any data that would be meaningful in any way. Uh, here you have a cohort of 902 patients who came through the emergency department from home and 130 who came in through skilled nursing facility. And the in-hospital mortality for these patients here is less than 20%. These are over 30%. Total average is 20.8. Not too surprising that they don't do as well as those who come in from home. Um, this is, again, Medicare patients only. If you look at the 90-day mortality, you see this, what I've shown in the previous graph, that at 90 days it goes up to around 35%. But for the skilled nursing facility cohort, you're now at around two-thirds mortality. You can guess what the next slide is, and that is following them out for 180 days. Even for the patients who come in from home, almost 60% mortality for patients with severe sepsis and septic shock who came from home. For those who came from SNF in this cohort that I'm describing here, they were all dead at 180 days.
patients who have congestive heart failure and renal or renal failure who may be at a particular risk for receiving a 30 ml fluid bolus, or at least that's what common thinking is. One of our member sites actually looked at their own data uh, on a thousand patients who have either have heart failure or chronic kidney disease came in with severe sepsis septic shock. And what they did is splice this cord up in three groups. One group with a missing element in the three-hour bundle, this is actually fluids. These are a cord of patients that did not receive the 30 ml per kilogram fluid bolus. Then a group that had the fluid completed within the three hours and then there's a cord where the, three, the full fluids were um, ordered, but they weren't quite sure if the patients all got it or not. But what this shows is that the mortality of those patients with heart failure or chronic renal failure who did not receive the flu full fluid bundle, the 30 ml per kilogram, was quite a bit higher than those who presumably um, or indeed got that fluid bolus. And so, given the fact that 30 ml per kilogram of fluid is one of the lowest element compliance issues that we have, and that patients in heart failure or chronic renal failure are considered to be at risk of getting that fluid bolus, that's very interesting data. The interpretation is likely that they come in most of the time very fluid restricted and volume contracted from the get-go because they are on you know, diuretics for their heart failure, as an example, and that they benefit from a limited fluid bolus even more than those patients who come in without congestive heart failure. But it's a difficult question to, to answer, but it's very important. Um, just mentioning that the CMS pay-for-performance uh, pay measure does not allow any conditions that are being excluded from receiving that fluid bolus. So we are now collecting, not just from one healthcare system, but across all healthcare systems, data from patients with congestive heart failure um, and renal failure, um, and see how they did, depending on how, if they got the fluid bolus or not. This is not a randomized controlled trial. This is retrospective data mining. Uh, but Again, the strength is going to be here in, in the numbers we're going to be able to get. I'm going to spend the last five minutes, and I'll be quick from here on, um, on this pay-for-performance measure, on some of the controversy that exists in the world of sepsis academics between the surviving sepsis campaign and some other groups, and... Um, what we are trying to do from the HGHC side to get this measure improved and better. So the current um, sepsis guidelines as published by Michael Howell in JAMA um, just a few weeks ago um, looks at best practice statements and, and recommendations. And so there's pretty good evidence that giving, identifying them and beginning treatment right away is a good thing, giving antibiotics is a good thing, <laughs> Give the fluid bolus 
low quality evidence but a strong recommendation, and then assess the patient somehow after you have done this initial thing by some way or another. Earlier, there was something like early goal-directed therapy that was part of the six-hour bundle, was initially in step one mandated that you do those things, but based on three large trials, process, arise, and promise, all in the New England Journal all last year that showed no difference whatsoever, um, this, was, this was changed. Target, get the blood pressure up, use norepinephrine as a first-line vasopressor, and then add vasopressin as needed. Um, another interesting paper in JAMA that came out last week or the week before uh, Chrissy sent that out was that in 2011, when we had a shortage of norepinephrine, the mortality of patients with severe sepsis and septic shock had increased. So step one in the payment, what does this actually mean for an institution like ours? The average CMS reimbursement for an inpatient episode of severe sepsis and septic shock is around $28,000. And the total 90-day reimbursement is $36,000. That's a lot of money to go with an all-in-one payment. This is CMS pay. This is not what we charge. What we charge is about three times as much. This is CMS reimbursement. If you look at different services, since this is uh, talk of medicine, so hospitalists, almost 8% of the hospitalist charges are related to sepsis. Um, critical care, over 50% of the charges are sepsis. And for pulmonary division, 25% of charges are sepsis. These are not all Medicare patients but a significant cohort is. And so if we fail to be compliant with this all or none measure, a significant chunk of our reimbursement is gonna disappear. It's not that 50% of our patients are sepsis patients, a large number is, but they stay for a long time and the reimbursement is high for each individual stay. Now, I said in the beginning, I'm going to try to close that loop on what Russ Miller had shown on the three-hour bundle compliance. And um, the improvement in mortality in their healthcare system, even for those patients who did not receive the full three-hour bundle. And so we were very interested in that using HEHC data. And so we did. We started out with patients who were discharged alive and those who received the full bundle versus did not receive the full bundle. This is, a, as you can see, it's a Kaplan-Meier curve, survival from discharge, and it's identical. So why would that be? Well, if you think about the four-hour bundle elements, only really two of them are interventional. That's giving the antibiotics and giving the fluids. The other ones, the culture before or after antibiotics question, are going to make a difference in patient outcomes. And drawing a lactate in the first three hours certainly is going to be helpful. It's going to guide therapy. It's all going to be good. But it's not necessarily going to determine a patient outcome. Yet this is being paid in an all or none fashion right now. There are multiple other very problematic things that um, 
are around the SEP1 payload performance measure. And this is one of these graphs that um, HVHC is using in a meeting in April when we may get some time with people up on the hill to try to use this to influence on how they, how they pay. Uh, this, is, um, this data is submitted um, in, in the form of a research letter to, uh, to JAMA. So one of the things you may ask yourself, and I'm going to close with this slide, is why did we see here the correlation of three-hour bundle improvement and decrease in mortality over time? <clears throat> when you just showed me that you know, complete um, bundle compliance doesn't correlate all that well, is I think because there are only two elements that are interventional. And having a high bundle compliance rate, certainly when it goes up from 5 to 60, 70, 80 percent, as we have had it, is the reflection of a better process that we have in place. That is not only getting these bundle elements to the patient, but also identifying these patients in time and directing care towards them. Because I think if we do that, they're going to do mostly well if we just know about it. So it's, it's almost more about the identification um, than about being compliant all the time. Yet being compliant all the time is what gives us the money. So at this point, we better be compliant all the time. The world of sepsis, in terms of academics, has been very um, problematic, I think, all along. There, it, it's a, almost like severe political infighting between different fractions. Um, and there's a group around um, the Pittsburgh critical care team and the surviving sepsis campaign, and they publish things that are trying to basically contradict what the other side has published. I, I'm painting a little bit more negative than it actually is, but it's, it's, it's not pretty overall. And so the surviving sepsis campaign massively influenced what CMS is doing with SEP1. Basically, they adopted their practices. And, and the other group has come up with multiple different publications suggesting different things. I'm only going to bring up, because there were three JAMA articles defining how sepsis should be um, defined in a different way from now on, using a sepsis organ failure assessment score. And they developed a... QSOFA, which is the quick sepsis organ failure assessment score, where it's a bedside exam of alteration of mental status, systolic low blood pressure and respiratory rate then greater than 22. And many people misinterpreted that, that this could be used as a screen for sepsis patients, and we have had this actually um, in our institution that people suggested that uh, nurses should use this versus the superstars we are using. It was designed to be a predictor of patient outcome, never designed to be a screen. And if you look at it, I'm just going to jump through these in the interest of time. If you look at the performance of QSOFA, this, these are uh, operator performance curves. This is done by NICE, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, UK Sepsis Trust. It is better than SIRS for patient in... in um, in the ED, but it's not as good as other early warning scores. So um, there's been a lot of discussion about how much of this is, should be adopted or not. Uh, at this time, most places, certainly inside HHC, are not adopting um, any of um, these suggestions from the JAMA article, and we're not alone. This is a uh, 
editorial in chest that says new sepsis criteria, a change we should not make. So considerable discussion about that. We're following it and, you know, as always, we're trying to distill what works best for us um, here at uh, DHMC with guidance from the High Value Healthcare Collaborative. These are some um, literature hints. If you're interested in it, I can send you these slides as well. Or if you have any questions, I'm happy to um, discuss anything or point you towards uh, supporting literature. So thanks very much for your attention. And I would be deliriously happy to uh, respond to questions. I think after that, you deserve to be deliriously happy. So, so questions from anyone? Cato. Andreas, we work in an environment where if we don't complete elements to get paid, the computer tells us, hey, Jack, you got to do this or we don't get paid. And so we have to enter the elements to get paid. Is the computer going to do that for this project? And, and if so, are we going to encourage making up data? And, and uh, what is the consequence of that for the institution? Right. So question number one, Carter, which is probably the greatest ask that the sepsis team has uh, from electronic support is basically workflow, right? The, we, we have not been able to replicate in Epic a piece of paper taped to the front of the chart that checks what has been done and lists what still needs to be done and follows a patient around from one care team to the next. This is working relatively well while the patient is being cared for by one team. But certainly for a sepsis patient, that's never the case. Just assume they arrive in the ED, you know, three out bundle elements are done, yet there are five other things, including the follow-up physical exam to be done within six hours that needs to be done by the next team. So that trans care transition from that ED team now to the hospitalist team or to the surgical team or to the ICU is very problematic. We don't have a great way of following patients with some workflow guideline steps that need to be done from service to service. That is missing. Um, I'm hoping that, I think it is an epic feature now that we are getting and we have been trying to make sepsis the first use case for it, but it's not here yet. The second question is, are we generating data just to be compliant or is there a risk of falsifying data to be compliant? Um, I think we are, as this stands right now, we are obliged to be compliant with it. And so would we write a note that otherwise we would have not written? Yes. The physical exam, I think, is an example for that. That's not falsifying data yet or making up data. I, at least I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think that we, you know, this is CMS data, so the feds are going to come in and look at this potentially. And so I think the scrutiny on when a note is written, um, what the timestamps are associated with that, are like all other federal data. Uh, I think the, I don't believe that people would go back and chart 
with the wrong timestamp and falsifying assessments or data. Um, that really shouldn't happen. The way we do it internally right now, the feedback loops are a little bit long. You know, if bundle elements are being missed, this is not a live process at this point. We just go back and say, four weeks later, by the way, this patient didn't have this done. We don't have this in place in a faster turnaround. It's one of these problems we have in an institution that provides care for very sick patients but has low volume. You know, it's hard to justify somebody that looks at charts every single day, oh, a sepsis patient came through, did we hit this today? We just, that, that those, we don't have those resources to do that. Brooke. Um, so it was fun to hear Andreas, like you were uncharacteristically sunny, I think, about all the great things that happened with collaboration and how great the collaboration was. But this project was, you know, the positive outlier in some of our projects. We did others that it didn't go as well. And, yeah. and, you know, there were a lot of different reasons for that. But I wonder, as you've done this, do you have reflections on what type of work is ripest for this type of collaboration? Like, what were the features of this project that you could generalize, maybe, that would say, this is really the place where collaboration is effective, or this is the type of project where collaborating on the scale works best. Yeah, I think the unique features of, of working in this particular collaborative is the combination of data collection and of learning together and sharing information. In order to make this work and see changes, you must have some sort of outcome that is easy to measure. You now, sepsis is binary outcome, and the adverse events are very frequent. And you can see a change over a relatively short period of time, right? Change over a short period of time is rewarding and keeps people engaged, right? If you do this in principle on, you know, diabetic outcomes and you're looking for an outcome that's 10 years down the road, that's much more difficult to do. So, you know, it's, it's the short gain, change, quick feedback loop, I think, that are the most are the projects that's going to work best, keep people engaged and see change, and then you know, move on to the next you know, quick fix. There are not that many of those. This sepsis, binary outcome, very quick change around, dramatic effect is, is, is a great one. And you know, there, there could be potential others as well. And I can think of a couple at least, but it, it's not easy to pick them right. For the pizza-friendly critique um, about the huge success that you guys have achieved, um, and that is that I mean, this has been an incredibly potent collaboration, and the number of evidence-based practices that you've been putting in practice is kind of mind-boggling for a short period of time. Uh, but I think the mortality data that uh, is uh, that's framing it isn't convincing. Uh, it's the sample size of our institution is so small and year-to-year -year variation is pretty big, so it leaves gaps. Mm -hmm. And I almost, um, I'd suggest removing that from the messaging about this, because we, did we improve crystalline administration, time to antibiotic administration, time to documentation and stuff, whether we like it or not, but stuff that leads to money? Absolutely massive success, and I would almost just subtract 
the potential for somebody to attach the data and critique it, as you alluded to, because those data should be critiqued. But and, and, I, and I wouldn't want that to undermine the fact that you guys have not been out of the park. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that comment. And you may have noticed that I didn't go out and said we eliminated death from sepsis here. We, this is not how we look at data. And as you could see by the ends, the numbers are small. Yet the cohort is very well defined, and the entry criteria have not changed. This is not just based on ICD codes or discharge codes. To be part of that cohort for the mortality data I showed, you actually have to meet criteria of a lactate greater 4 or blood pressure less than 90 and, and some of those things. So it is not that we expanded the cohort dramatically and yet that explained some of the change. The cohort definition has been the same over time. Nevertheless, with 100 patients per year, to see these trends from quarter to quarter as they're bouncing up and down is a difficult statement to make. And so, you know, we think that we have seen a decrease in mortality. If you do a linear regression for that and you look at it, it is actually statistically significant. But on the other hand, I would not um, go out and say we have solved the problem of sepsis either. I, I think that there's a balance between those two things. And as I said, I, I, I tried very hard not to overstate um, the, the achievements here. I think given the hour, uh, we should, if you're willing, will you take questions from people? Oh, sure. Coming up, so thank you very much. Uh, it's a great example of the work that you can do in collaboration. Thank you. <laughs>